Good morning again, everybody. Are y'all mad at me for hating on your clapping? I'm like in that last song, I'm pretty sure somebody was like trolling me with a clap. It was like, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was, yeah, it was Nate. It was old Nate, because we have multiple Nates. We got young Nate, we got big Nate, and now you're old Nate, just for that. Um, it's fine, it's fine. Listen, here's my, th- I, I just subscribed to the, the Mr. Miyagi philosophy of clapping, of um, like, if you walk on the right side of the road, you're fine. You walk on the left side of the road, you're fine. You walk on the middle, squash like grape, right? You karate do yes, fine. You karate do no, fine. You karate do maybe so. Squash like grape, that's how I feel about clapping, right? Either everybody's gotta be all in on the clapping or everybody's gotta be all out on the clapping. And if you, you know, clap, maybe so, squash like grape. And that's how I feel about it. Anyways, um, so uh, I have to tell you, uh, that was maybe one of the greatest things that's happened to me uh, this week, but I have to tell you about the single greatest thing that happened to me last week. I mean, y'all, y'all know, like life is hard, right? I mean, life is, is just, earth is a difficult place to be sometimes. And, you know, it's just full of indignities and struggles. But every once in a while, an event comes along that just lifts your soul, that just brings you joy. And I have to tell you about one that I experienced a little over a week ago. I was watching the UNC NC State basketball game last Wednesday. And it's not even the fact that UNC won fairly easily. Um, That's neither here nor there. But nevertheless, during the game, Armando Baycott, one of UNC's players, and Ben Middlebrooks, uh, one of NC State's players, got tangled up, resulting in Armando Baycott getting a technical foul. And as the referees were reviewing the incident to try to figure out, you know, who was going to get a foul or what was going on, this handsome face appeared on the screen. Now, I don't know if you can see how, if you can see that well enough, so let's go to the closer up view. If you're noticing any similarities to what you've seen recently, that is our scripture reader for this morning. Big Nate, known affectionately as Big Nate to the youth, but that is Nathan Reston, an NC State senior and member of Ecclesia, lover of Jesus and hater of Tar Heels. <laughs> Big Nate was on national television letting Armando Baycott know that he did not appreciate him pushing down one of his players in red. And he was doing so in a very calm and rational manner. Of course, I do have it on video, but I, for copyright purposes, can't play it. Um, You'll just have to trust me that he was just being incredibly polite in expressing his feelings toward Armando Baycott. And it was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. We had so much fun with this at the youth retreat last weekend because Big Nate was there and I was there and I played the video for him a few times and it was fun. And I truly, truly, with all my heart, love Big Nate, not only because he's just a great kid and he's a great volunteer for, you're not a kid anymore, you're a young adult, sorry about that. Um, I'm old, so I call everybody kid. but he is a wonderful youth volunteer. But more than that, he's one of the few people I know that care enough about sports and is passionate enough about sports to actually have real conversations with me. And it's fantastic. Most other people bring up sports with me and within 30 seconds, they'll really regret what they did. (laughs) 
And like, I wish this guy would stop talking. Big Nate is here for it and I love it. But this whole thing, you know, it got me thinking about sports rivalries, right? It got me thinking about the absurdity of sports rivalries. I mean, we live in a very sports heavy area, particularly in basketball season. And, you know, let's be honest, if you were to map the teams and the players and the coaches and all of that, if you were, if you were to map them, you know, according to values and attitudes or even like socioeconomics and, and the economics of the game and all of that stuff, they're, they're pretty much all exactly the same. But we treat them like they are battles between good and evil for the soul of mankind, like we are storming Mordor. Nobody likes Lord of the Rings, that's hurtful. Um, we create these like myths of purity, right? For our own team. Our team is the team that's just, oh, they're so pure and their motivations are great and they're all just from really awesome situations or great families or they've overcome really great things uh, and they're really difficult things in their lives and they're just amazing people. And then the other team is just full of complete demons, right? That vi we villainize them, we dehumanize them. Annie Jenkins is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, but I'm pretty sure she believes that the gates of Hades are located in Chapel Hill beneath the old well. My, and my, my own lovely wife subscribes to the Phil Collins life plan as it relates to any and all Duke basketball players. The, well, if you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand. My wife is one of the most wonderful people I've ever known, but there is absolutely no convincing her that Grayson Allen is a human being. <laughs> and I'm not even gonna act holier than thou, because sometimes I get way too worked up about 20-year-olds playing basketball. And if I'm being completely honest, late stage Tom Brady, I just couldn't bring myself to wish that dude well. I was human schadenfreude when it comes to that guy. And to be fair, he clearly made a deal with the devil because he looks younger today than he did when he was 25. And like conspiracy theories, right? Listen, you, sh you all should do this. It's amazing. The funniest thing in the world is attending a game that you have no investment in and just watching how ridiculous everyone else is. I mean, people constantly claiming that the refs are like evil and cheating on behalf of the other team. Do you really think the middle-aged men making 20 bucks an hour on a Friday night care who wins this football game? You have got to be kidding me. And one of my favorite phenomena now that we're in the, the video review era, right, is when they make a call and then they put what happened on the giant jumbotron so everybody knows exactly what happened objectively, but still, when the ref comes out and tells you that it goes against your team, the whole stadium still boos, even though the evidence is right there on the screen telling them that they were wrong. It's hilarious. We are crazy and irrational when it comes to sports and our sports teams. Now, usually, we brush all this off like it's just trivial, right? It's just sports. And on some level, of course it is. But what if this actually reveals something about us, about the tendencies of the human heart? Because I think this, this tribalism and this ability to other people 
and then give ourselves permission to casually dehumanize them. Like I think that lives in us all the time. The desire to define some people as good and other people as bad, some as worthy, others as unworthy, is like deeply embedded within us. Honestly, that's kind of what sin is. And sports just gives us a socially acceptable outlet to express it. With sports, we just get to say the quiet part out loud. Now, talking about sports is a pretty trivial way of entering into a serious conversation, but I think it's a good place to start in reflecting on one of our lectionary texts this morning, the passage from Jonah, the example par excellence of someone letting their tribalism get the best of them and completely losing the plot. Fun fact, Jonah only appears in the three-year lectionary cycle twice. And they're both short passages from chapter three, like we just read. We got dropped into the middle of the story. Jonah is actually much more significant in the Jewish tradition. It's read every single year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So it's fascinating that we kind of brush right by Jonah, but the, in the, the Jewish tradition, it's extremely important. I don't know if that means something, but maybe it does. The story of Jonah is one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible, if you know what you're reading. Sometimes we kind of caricature the story of Jonah. We focus a little too much on the, the great fish that swallows Jonah, which is not a whale, it's a great fish. By the way, fun fact also, the word for fish in Hebrew is dog, so dog is fish. I don't know, that's fun. So we focus a little too much on the great fish, the dog, and uh, we largely miss the point of the story itself because the story is not about a fish or a whale or whatever you wanna call it. It's about Jonah's heart. Jonah is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's only four chapters long, and each of those chapters is really short. You could honestly read it in probably five to seven minutes. And it's a very peculiar book, which I think is probably intentional. Here's the Cliff Notes version of the story of Jonah. God speaks to Jonah in chapter one and says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wicked, wickedness has come up before me. Now, just for some background, Nineveh was located to the east of Israel on the banks of the Tigris River or the Tigris River, never really sure how to pronounce that. And it was the capital city of Assyria, the greatest empire in the world during the time of the divided kingdom where there was Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. And spoiler alert, in 722 BC, a generation-ish after Jonah, the Assyrian Empire would come and conquer Israel and exile all of its people and repopulate the land, making it impossible for them to ever return. To this day, the northern 10 tribes of Israel are known as the lost tribes because this event essentially erased them from history as an ethnic or religious entity. In other words, in Jewish history, Israel, or Nineveh, Assyria, are the great bad guys, or at least one of the great bad guys. So Jonah, when told to go preach to Nineveh, says, 
hard pass. In fact, he doesn't actually say anything at all. He just tries to disappear. And he runs in the opposite direction to Tarshish, which is in modern day Spain, which at the time was literally as far away as they knew about in the ancient world. It was literally the end of the world. While he was on this ship, going the opposite direction of where he was called to, God churns up the sea, threatening to shipwreck the ship and kill all of the people on the ship. So Jonah tells them, this is my fault. Throw me overboard so that you all will be saved. And he, he assumes that he will die when he's thrown into the sea. But God brings up the famous great fish and it swallows him and takes him down to the depths of the sea. And this represents a death of sorts, right? It's like going down to Sheol, that place of death where everyone in the Old Testament goes. But in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays to God and the fish then vomits him back up on the land. And that's when we arrive at our text for today, when God comes to Jonah a second time and tells him to go to Nineveh. So then he agrees and he goes to Nineveh and he proclaims 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And shockingly, almost immediately, all of Nineveh, from the greatest to the smallest, the king all the way down to their animals, repents. And God forgives them and does not bring the destruction that he was initially proclaiming to them. And this, of course, was the text we read earlier. So, wonderful story, right? Cue the happy music. Jonah has grown and matured from his experience of running away and being swallowed by an enormous fish. He saved a city and he, the movie ends with great music and he rides off into the sunset. Except that's not at all how the movie ends. After our text about the repentance of Nineveh, the book of Jonah concludes with this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, 
in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Which is the funniest line of the whole thing, right? And also many animals? The end. Now, a couple quick remarks about Jonah. There's a lot of debate as to whether the book of Jonah is history or parable. I mean, it certainly has some fantastical elements, right? Not just the great fish swallowing Jonah and him surviving the ordeal, but the fact that Jonah tries to comically escape to literally the opposite side of the world and that the entire city of Nineveh repents, animals included, after a one-sentence phoned-in proclamation. If this is history, it's very different from the rest of the history that we read in the Bible. Also, side note, which might actually be a central note, we know that Nineveh's repentance, either A, didn't really happen historically, or B, it happened only very briefly, because as mentioned, in less than a century, this people would march out of this city into Israel and destroy them. But regardless of these academic questions, one thing is absolutely certain. Jonah is a turd. And that's the theological term for it. In his own words, he ran away from God because he didn't want God to forgive his enemies. And when God did forgive his enemies, he sat there and pouted about it like a toddler and said he wished that he was dead because he was so unhappy about God's forgiveness. Whether this story is parable or history, it's clearly about the fact that God deeply loves and cares about all people, including your enemies, and it poses the question, how do you feel about that? Now, this is somewhat speculative because obviously there are limitations to us understanding Jesus' thought and life beyond what we're told explicitly in Scripture. But I can't help but feel like the story of Jonah was really formative in Jesus' life. Like, I can almost imagine it being his favorite story when he was a kid. He references it, references it several times explicitly in his ministry and probably several times more implicitly in his ministry. But even more than that, it feels like this story is just embedded in his teaching and especially in his parables. I mean, the teaching to love your enemies and pray for them has Jonah written all over it. The parable of the Good Samaritan where the bad guy, the ethnically and religiously other becomes the good guy. I mean, that feels like it's got Jonah written all over it, but I wanna focus specifically on two of Jesus's parables. The parable of the workers in the vineyard and the parable of the unjust steward. So first, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. In Matthew 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. 
He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. He seems to want the first to watch what the last get. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So here, like Jonah, we have a story of God's generosity experienced as unfairness. God is unfair. He is unfairly forgiving. He is unfairly generous. The most arresting line in this parable, at least I've always felt, is the landowner's question, are you envious because I am generous? In the Greek, and probably the Hebrew behind it as well, it's, it's really even more powerful if you translate it literally. It says, is your eye bad or wicked or evil because I am good? If we're being honest with ourselves, the answer to this question is yes. Unequivocally, brutally, yes. Curtis actually kind of hinted at this last week talking about deconstruction influencers and that amazing quote by C.S. Lewis. If you missed any of that, you should go back and listen. We spend a lot of time in the modern church wrestling with why bad things happen to good people and that is, of course, a really, really difficult question, but I don't think that's actually the hardest question that we have to confront in life. I think the hardest question for us is why do good things happen to bad people? People that we decide are bad or unworthy. The hardest question for us is not what if God has mercy, what if God doesn't have mercy on someone I want him to? I think the harder question is, what if God has mercy on someone I'd prefer him not to? Years ago, back when uh, listening to a podcast meant downloading an MP3 and putting it on a little thing, way before smartphone was even a word, I used to listen to every sermon from Mars Hill Bible Church, the one in Grand Rapids, Michigan, not the one in Seattle. And one time, they did a sermon series called The Flames of Heaven. And I thought it was brilliant. The idea was, we of course talk a lot in the modern church about the fire or the flames of hell, but what if, by virtue of its goodness, heaven might initially, at least, be hard 
for some of us. Because there will be people from every tribe and nation there. So if you have any hidden racism or prejudice within you, that's either gonna have to burn away or you're not gonna feel at home there. If you think you have earned something in this world, some stature or honor that makes you special, well, that's gonna have to burn away in the refiner's fire because God in heaven don't care about that. And if it doesn't, heaven's gonna feel like an itchy sweater to you. And God wants you to love your enemies, Jesus said so, which means he already does, which means they'll likely be there too. So that animosity will have to burn away in the refiner's fire or you will never be comfortable there. Is there anyone, don't say it out loud by the way, (laughs) just reflect on the inside. But is there anyone, if you're courageous enough to really dig down deep into your emotions and into your psyche, that you would be kind of disappointed to see in heaven? If so, you've got some work to do. And that's okay, because we all do. God is without a doubt unfair. Can we cope with that? Or will we be like Jonah? pouting outside the city, unable to celebrate what God has done. Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. This parable, of course, is on one level just about hypocrisy, about demanding things from others that you won't demand from yourself, about expecting to receive things that you don't feel the need to pass on to others. But I've always felt like this parable was more about worldviews than ethics. The king 
forgiving the debt here is not an isolated transaction. It's an invitation into a world where debts no longer need to exist. It's an invitation into a cosmology of grace. The king isn't really canceling a debt. He is trying to cancel the whole economy of debts. But in order to live in that economy, you have to accept it fully. You can't just accept it selectively. If you don't, for, if you don't offer that forgiveness of debts to others, then you haven't really accepted the new economy of grace, and thus you can't experience it. Like in Jonah, there is nothing more absurd than wanting God to be something for you and then wanting him to be something else for others. The lesson of Jonah and these two parables, and really it seems to me the entire ministry of Jesus, seems to be grace is not a transaction. It's a cosmological reality you can either align yourself with or not. And this is why I think that Jonah, in one of its only two mentions in the three years of the lectionary, is paired with the calling of the disciples. Because I think Jonah is foreshadowing what Jesus is calling them to. And I don't think they fully recognize it yet, but they will. They are going to be taught and have to learn to love their enemies and pray for them. They are going to have to learn to radically expand the boundaries of their love and forgiveness. They will have to put to death everything within them that wants to hold on to prejudices and tribalisms and subtle feelings of superiority. All of it is gonna have to burn away or they'll never be comfortable in Jesus's kingdom. God loves the Ninevites. Can we deal with that? God loves the Ninevites. Whoever your Ninevites are, God loves them. Can you deal with that? Can we align ourselves with that type of cosmology of grace? Or will we find ourselves on the outside looking in, pouting about a plant? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deeply challenging story of Jonah and for these deeply challenging parables that Jesus told to show us what his kingdom is like. Father God, help us live and love in such a way where we have no Ninevites but also give us the courage to look deeply within to see if we do and to pray to you for help and reminders of the grace that you've given us so that we can give it to others. In that, we know we can be transformed. We love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.